Hey, mom group, have you thought that this motherhood thing would be so much simpler if only you could access a caregiver on demand? Well, there's an app for that. Poppy Seed Health gives you 24-7 text access to doulas, midwives, and nurses to support you along your journey to parenthood, birth, or to help guide you through miscarriage and loss. That means you get support in seconds right from your phone. Go to the App Store to download the Poppy Seed Health app and use code POPPYXNSFMG to get an additional free month after your free trial. Again, that's code POPPY, P-O-P-P-Y, X-N-S-F-M-G to receive one additional free month after your free trial. From the folks at Not Safe for Mom Group, this is the Not Safe for Mom Group podcast, where we bring you real moms telling you real stories about their lives. The stories that usually take a few glasses of wine or a whole lot of trust to get someone to open up about. These are stories that are often kept in the vault, that we only hear from a best friend, but once we hear them, we recognize something of ourselves in them. It's a relief to know that whatever crappy thing we've gone through, someone else has experienced it too. And now that that's out there, we can support one another through it. I'm your host and the founder of Not Safe for Mom Group, Alexis Barad Cutler. I'm also a mom of two. And after having kids, have had to face some of the more complicated parts of my past and present. Whenever I've done so, it's always helped me connect with people, which is why this work is so important to me. Welcome to Mom Group. Hey, Mom Group. Today, we're going to be talking about some topics that may be a little inappropriate, or maybe a lot inappropriate, um, for a younger audience. So just giving you all a heads up. Our podcast guest today, Erica Garza, is the author of the memoir, Getting Off, One Woman's Journey Through Sex and Porn Addiction. And that title has been featured at the New York Times, L. Vice, The Guardian, and more. And you probably have read some of her essays because they've appeared in like every publication, too many to name in one breath. When I first read her book, I felt so liberated. I had never read anything like it where someone was talking so openly, so vulnerably about their sex lives, their proclivities, their most secret thoughts. And it really helped free me from some of my own feelings around shame and sex. So I was so excited. Like the great thing about having a podcast is you get to invite some of your favorite writers and and, pe- and speakers and specialists. So I was really excited when you agreed to come on the podcast. Welcome, Erica. Thank you for having me. It's great to finally um, connect with you, even though this is through a screen, but see your face and, and talk to you this way because I've just followed you on social media so long. It's really great to connect with you because I've just read, read your stuff and followed online. So it's really nice for both of us. Um, tell us a little bit, I always like to ask my guests in the beginning to tell me, um, you know, what their life looks like right now. It's like COVID and weird. Are you working from home? Are you, do you go somewhere else? Are you married? And do do you have children? I mean, I know the answers to these things, but our guests don't. So I'm just going to let you tell us a little bit about your life right now. Sure. So I am married. I've, I'm celebrating my ninth wedding anniversary this year. So almost there at the 10 Bravo. Mark. And um, we have a five, almost six-year-old daughter. 
And we spent the last two years, our COVID experience is quite weird because we spent the last two years abroad. My husband was teaching at an international school in China when COVID happened. So we were like right at the epicenter when it happened. And um, we escaped there, came back to the U.S. and thought we could, you know, be away from it. And then it started happening in the U.S. And then we went back to China and then we moved to Cambodia for a year. So we've been all over the place, zigzagging, trying to get away from the pandemic, but whatever it caught up with us anyway it's so now, everywhere yeah it's everywhere so now we're back in LA where I grew up um I have a lot of family here so it's good for my daughter after like seeing her on the road and traveling a bit and seeing how she was having to change locations too often and like make new friends and all that kind of stuff we thought it would be healthier to just stay in one place for a bit and be around family especially when the world seems to be like in total turmoil <laughs> so yeah. So now um, my life is quite nice. Like I feel content and satisfied and it's a weird place to be, honestly, because I've spent many, many years and I'm sure if you've read any of my stuff, um, just feeling chronically dissatisfied and trying to chase one thing after the next. I used to do that um, with lots of locations. So I've lived in lots of places around the world, but many of those times I was trying to escape something. Mm-hmm. Um, escape was a big habit of mine, as we'll talk about. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, to finally be in a place and, and try to be grounded and and feel okay with that and feel grateful for being in one place is, is different for me, but I'm liking it so far. So, so my, hus- my husband and I keep like, when is this going to change? When are we going to like <laughs> get dissatisfied? But no, it's it's been great so far. So hopefully it stays that way. It's so interesting that you're able to be in this place of settled and like feeling good in your skin. Well, I think like everybody I know is losing their minds, mm-hmm. um, you know, because of the trauma of the past couple of years and the instability and politics around the world. Um, it's like every day is another bad day uh, for, for a lot of people. And I just, you know, it's probably because you've been through so much already yeah. that you're like, this is still better than what was happening before. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were in very, very strange situations with the whole, like, I mean, being in China when the pandemic happened and like being surrounded by people in hazmat suits and we had to do like these crazy quarantines where we couldn't even like open our window more than a few feet, uh, inches. So, so yeah, this feels much better in comparison, but I'm sure, I mean, I totally empathize with all the people who have been locked down here and not knowing if their kids are going back to school. I mean, that's real too. And, and I totally, I totally feel that. But how special for your daughter to be able to travel around the world at such a young age and be able to put all those miles in her pocket already. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if she'll remember that. any of it, but you know. Yeah. She'll look at pictures and then the memory starts, you create memory out of all of those stories and pictures. So speaking of little girls, um, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your upbringing um, in LA and your your childhood, like who is the young Erica before you know we we get into what happens to her at like age twelve? Pretty normal, happy, privileged childhood. Uh, it's always important for me to point that out because um, later on, you know, when we talk about the sex addiction, everyone's always like the first question I think that pops into people's mind is like, did she have this like traumatic upbringing and my, is that when her addiction began? But um, for me, it was just, I had a very ordinary childhood and and happy um, up until I'd say around age 12. Age 12 is a big year for me. 
um, because I was diagnosed, diagnosed with scoliosis and I had to wear a back brace. And that was the beginning of me really becoming um, ashamed of my body and scared of what everybody else thought. I, I had this, I was always an anxious kind of worrisome kid, but um, that just was exasperated by the, or exasperated. I can't say that word, but it, it became much, it became much worse during that time. I just was, was paranoid, like thinking everyone was talking behind my back. And, um, I became socially anxious to the point where I still sort of struggle from, with social anxiety and social awkwardness. Um, and, um, I think it all began around that time. I just became disconnected, um, from other people and it was during that time that I discovered masturbation. So um, I found that a masturbation was this great escape from all of those terrible feelings that I didn't know how to deal with. Um, so I would lock myself away either in the bathroom or in my room and just like go on a vacation in my brain, in my body. Um, and that was super effective except that when I would have an orgasm, then all of those feelings would come rushing back again. So it was a really ineffective um, escape. And um, yeah, the beginning of my troubles with sex and, and compulsion. Did your family ever talk about sex with you? Like, did you have some kind of idea what was happening, what you were doing and like what it was and if other people did it too? <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, the only message I got from sex, well, at home, I got no messages about sex, except for um, there are two things that, that pop out for me, which is whenever there was like a, a, a movie playing that had a sex scene, it was just like this overdone um, reaction of like, close your eyes. And it, so it gave me this feeling of like, oh, my God, like, like I was I was curious about it, but I was also really scared and like figured whatever that was, was totally bad and wrong. And, you know, can't look at it, can't talk about it. Um, and then the other message I got is I remember driving to school with my mom and we passed a high school and there were um, two pregnant girls walking to school. There was a lot of teenage pregnancy in my, in my neighborhood. And my mom pointed and said, um, see that right there. Don't let that ever happen to you. And then she pointed to my crotch and was like, don't let anyone ever touch you down there. And so that was like terrifying for me. Like, this is like the worst thing that could happen. And it all happened because of sex, you know? And then um, the messages I got at school was just, you know, sex was something that happened between a man and a woman who loved each other. And it was just to make babies. And so anything outside of that, that I was experiencing, which was, you know, masturbation. And then also um, like having feelings for girls as well. Like none of that was covered. So I figured that anything that was a diversion from whatever they were telling me had to be bad, which meant I was bad and I was wrong. Um, yeah. So very mixed messages about sex from an early age. I mean, that sounds kind of like the same story I've heard from a lot of friends growing up and how their parents treated sex and sex scenes in movies. My parents did the same thing, like switch a channel, you know, or like go out of the room. And I was like, what's happening? Like, why do we have to switch? The I had no idea. Um, but I knew that I wasn't supposed to see it. And the first time I even knew what masturbation was, was because I was in a car with a friend and her mom and she had Howard Stern on. And my mother still has not forgiven that mother. Oh my God. 
Wow. <laughs> still mad about it. And yeah, I think I was like 13 when I learned the word. It's just wild. How did how your mom work. know that she that you learned that that day? Because her my friend's mom bragged to her, <laughs> like, I taught your daughter something today. I can't believe you never talked to her about this. Wow. Yeah. Well, she liked to poke the bear. Getting, I would see how your mom would get kind of mad by the way that she brought it up too. Like I brought it up first and like you didn't have the chance to do it or – Oh, no, my mom would still not be talking about it today. Uh, You know, I've had two kids. We just, (laughs) we don't go there. Immaculate conception. (laughs) Totally immaculate. Um, So I want to break it down for our audience because not everyone really understands this topic or most people don't don't understand it. They think they do. Uh, What is sex addiction? What is sex addiction? Because I, you know, I've been doing some research in preparation for our interview, and I, I saw it's, I guess the clinical term is hypersexual disorder, and I know when I used to hear sex addiction, I only imagined like a man, um, like who just you know was sleeping with all the ladies. Um, I, I didn't really even know it was something that like regular people experience. It was just like a character in my head. Um, And especially with women, like we're not supposed to be even interested in in sex unless we're asked to. And then if we're not, then we're like cold and like a terrible partner. So anyway, um, I know you know a lot more on this topic. So if you can tell us what it is, because I just described what it isn't. Um, so, I mean, it's it's super normal for you to imagine sex addiction that way. I, that was always the way that I had imagined it as well. I mean, I didn't, I hadn't even heard the term sex addiction um, until I was in my late 20s or something. Um, and yeah, I thought the same thing. It's just like something that like a, a man does who's like probably rapes women or like, you know, sees lots of prostitutes. Like you have all these sorts of ideas. And I think those ideas come up because people aren't talking about it. And it's much more... Um, comprehensive and includes a lot of other behaviors beyond just sex and it includes Mm -hmm. a lot of other people beyond just men. Um, And so, yeah, so sexual, I would, I would describe sex addiction as a sexual compulsion in which you feel out of control. Um, It's something that you've tried to stop, but you don't feel like you can stop even when it takes you to destructive places. And sex addiction can be an addiction to sexual intercourse. It can be uh, an addiction to compulsive masturbation. It could be an addiction to pornography. Um, there's a lot of other, you know, different ways that people manifest this, but it all comes down to sexual behaviors. Um, however you define that, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. and I would say that it has a lot to do with obsessive thoughts as well. Um, not being able to escape that and, and not really knowing what to do with it and feeling a lot of shame, um, because of it. The shame part seems to be, from what I read um, from from your book and essays, that 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 was like an integral part of the whole addiction. Like like the shame was something you also needed. Can you talk Absolutely. about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, the first time I masturbated, I remember feeling like I'd found the most thrilling thing ever. It's something I wanted to do every single day. It was my calling. It was my thing. I'd uncovered some great secret, right? Like it was awesome. Um, But at the same time, I felt completely disgusted with myself and ashamed because I didn't know what I was doing. 
Um, I didn't know if it was right. I didn't, it felt like I had entered a room that I wasn't supposed to be in um, and that everybody was going to find out about it, you know? So it was like this secret that I carried around on, and just felt bad about. And that became such a huge part of my sexuality um, going forward for many, many years, I didn't know how to feel pleasure without feeling shame because those two things had been interlinked from the very, very beginning. And I didn't know how to separate them from each other. And this meant that oftentimes when I was watching porn, um, I would search for scenes that gave me that double dose, you know, that would give me, make me feel like turned on, but also a bit turned off. So I would look for degrading scenes, um, like gang bangs. I would, I, my search terms, I mean, I don't know how much I can, I can say, but like, like my search yeah. terms. Okay, great. It could be like, like sad, sad tie hooker or something like that, or like Bukaki to the point of drowning, you know, like lots of just like very descriptive because I wanted to see the most degrading thing possible because I would be so sickened with myself for even being attracted to those sorts of things. Um, But it gave me that, you know, that, that feeling of both shame and pleasure. And then I would seek that out in the bedroom as well with partners. Like, how can I get somebody to treat me that way? How can I feel bad and good at the same time? Um, So it was super complex. Um, But yeah, I carried that around for a long time and had to do a lot of work to kind of separate those two and realize that I can feel good without, without feeling ashamed of it. So much of what you're saying resonates Uh, before when you were describing what addiction is when it comes to sex addiction, it really reminds me of all other kinds of addictions. Um, you go through that those same motions of like you're obsessive about it. It's the only thing you can think about. And then you do the thing and it's it felt good for a moment, but now it doesn't. Like I, I used to have an eating disorder, so I, I really – I know what that like addictive feeling is like. And But at the same time, knowing that I was destroying my body. Right. And they're they're just, they're so related. Absolutely. I mean, I often wonder if I had just had access to alcohol when I was going through that time or pills or, you know, somebody had given me some kind of drug. Like, I feel like I could have easily gone down a different path with the addicted, whatever addiction I chose. Um, Because, but it all started at the same place. It all started, you know, from wanting to escape from feeling um, ill-equipped to deal with problems that came up, uh, you know, trying to escape myself. Just all of these things, I think that they're behind a lot of addictions and it doesn't really matter, you know, what poison you pick. It just Mm -hmm. matters why you're picking it. Mm -hmm. So how did you go from, you know, hiding, hiding in your room and feeling ashamed to becoming sexual with partners? Like when was that? And what was it like for you seeing the scenes that you'd imagine in your head, like come to life? Uh, thrilling and scary at the same time. I had very limited access to boys and men because I had gone to a uh, Catholic school all the way to, to freshman year, but then I went to all girls Catholic school for high school. So, I mean, I only saw boys at like school, arranged school dances and things like that. And, um, and so it was like this big mystery boys and, but I had been watching porn already for a while. So I had all of these like built up scenes that I wanted to act out and I couldn't wait to the day that some guy was going to give me attention um, enough for us to, you know, experience, for me to experience those things. And it, so it wasn't until I was 16 that I first kissed a boy. So super late bloomer, I think, I don't know, 
compared to some some other people. But I mean, it all depends. And I didn't have sex until I was 17. And I remember after I had sex the first time, just like thinking, okay, finally, like I've done this thing. Like it's so important. I've checked this, like this box off my checklist of things to do in life. And then it just became super easy to do it again and again and find new partners. And it was almost like I opened the floodgates and now I wasn't going to stop. Like, okay, this is what I've been waiting for. And now I'm just going to go for it. Um, And so it became something where if anyone showed me attention, whether I was attracted to them or not, um, I was going to, I was going to latch onto that and um, see where it took me. Um, And I love that validation that I got from being desired by somebody feeling desirable. Um, uh, yeah. So college, yeah. Filled, filled with lots of different experiences like that. And it, it just intensified over time. Did you tell your partners, like, did you talk about your feelings and, you know, like the reason, like I have an insatiable sexual appetite. It's something, it's just part of me did you have like open discussions about your thoughts and feelings? I'm sure people? that some, no, absolutely not. I mean, if I could keep things cool and casual, that was preferred. In fact, any time that I felt like I was getting a little bit too close or revealing a little too much about myself, then I would try to find a way to sabotage the relationship and push them away because that was just way too scary. Cause if I was going to get rejected for who I am, that's way scarier. Getting close to someone I, I just, I just couldn't do it. And also because I didn't feel worthy of it either. Um, I felt like love wasn't for me. I, what was for me because I was such this sick, gross person was just this kind of like casual, no strings attached thing where I can feel discarded. I can feel used and discarded and I can use and discard them. Um, that's how many relationships played out. Oh Yeah. Um, what was like your first real relationship like? Um, scary. I mean, when I started to feel like I had feelings in that relationship, I'd say it was my college boyfriend who I was with for a few years. I was super jealous. Always thought he was going to try to have sex with other girls. I remember he had had sex with one more person than I had. And I felt like he had this advantage over me. And I just (laughs) thought he was like the coolest guy ever. He like took mushrooms and gave himself tattoos at home. And I just thought like, Oh, he's like God, you know, and I totally worshiped him. Um, but then, but then, yeah, like I said, that became too scary after a while. And, and so I'd rather just throw it away and go for the the easy fix than invest any kind of emotion into anything. What happened uh, with like your friendships around the college time? Like, were you able to talk to any other women about what you were going through? Or was this, you kept it all a secret from like your regular crowd? Yeah, I kept it all a secret. The idea wow. of people finding out what I was doing behind closed doors was so terrifying. Um, I just, you know, imagined getting rejected and, and being alone, even though I was isolating anyway. So I already was lonely most of the time. Um, but yeah, like for people to know I was masturbating as much as I would or the kind of porn I watched, you know, it was it was scary. The number of people I'd had sex with, all those things mm-hmm. just felt like so terrifying for people to find out. So yeah, secrecy was a big part of my lifestyle. Which such a double standard, man. Like in college, I remember 
this frat that we used to hang out with, they would, you know, send us links to the grossest, you know, porn. And we'd be like, what? Like, you know, it said something else and you'd open it and then they would they would laugh hysterically that like we opened it. And it was just okay and known for to imagine them watching it. But let's say that one of us were like, oh, I guess I want to check this out a little bit more. You had to do that totally in secret. Yeah, of course. I was just going to say, we know the kind of words that we use for women who have a lot of sex or watch a lot of porn. You know, we have sluts and she's a slut, she's a whore, all this kind of stuff. But if guys are doing that, it's just like, oh, it's just, you know, boys being boys, all that kind of stuff continues for a long time. We just expect these things from men. But if a woman does it, it's like something's wrong with her. And I think that's why a lot of women aren't honest about their sex lives and why a lot of women aren't honest if they have a sexual addiction. They're not talking about it because no one else is talking about it. In my community, I mean, I think that sexuality and desire, they they shift and they they morph and they, you know, ebb and flow as one goes through life. But one of the topics we talk about a lot in Not Safe for Mom group is libido loss. Um, especially after motherhood and like this feeling of being completely untethered from one's desire. Like I've heard some folks describe it as feeling dead inside and you won't have any trouble finding research on like women who can't feel sexual desire because it's, it's in line with what we would expect, right? Like men want it all the time when women never do. And then I think that we buy into this narrative that, like, moms don't want to have sex. Mm-hmm. And we don't talk about the opposite, which is the hyposexuality. And I wonder if, like, when we're talking about this it, in our community, like, online, all the, the women who actually don't feel less sexual, they must feel so unseen. Women who don't, who, who want to have a lot of sex. Yes, yes. And they're reading all these moms being like, oh, yeah, I could live without sex for the rest of my life, you know, and everyone's like, ha ha, me too. I hate sex. And and then there's like one outlier who's like, I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm having a good time still. And we're like, we hate her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You would not feel supported at all. It would it would sort of feel like bragging, I think, to bring it up. If, if women were struggling with not having their libido and like grieving that and then you just came in and it's like, well, I, I'm having lots of sex. I think it could come <laughs> off that way, you know? Um, but then, yeah, it, it doesn't leave room to talk about if that has become problematic either. Right. Um, right. Because it's great to want to have sex. Yeah. But when it becomes and, something. And even having a lot of sex. So a lot of people ask me, um, you know, am, like I get lots of messages from people still where it's just like, I watch porn four times a week or something. Am I an addict? You know, and I can't answer these questions for them. Like, it's up to them to decide if they have, you know, problems with their sexual behaviors. Um, but, you know, it can't be measured that way either. And, and it's it's always important for me to tell people, like, it doesn't matter if you have a lot of sex or if you watch a lot of porn, you can still have a healthy sex life. Um, it just matters how you feel about those things. And if it's, you know, causing havoc in your relationships or your work, and you know, there's all sorts of other ways to look at it. Um, but trying to measure it that way, it, it's not an accurate representation of addiction. So, you know, like how, like if you are trying to figure out if you have a problem, one of the biggest signals is like, do I feel like shit after yeah. doing the thing that I'm obsessed with? 
But then, like, let's say you wanted to seek out recovery from sex addiction or porn addiction, and um, which I, I guess is part of the, the sex addiction. The spaces that are available to you are mostly male, right? Well, not necessarily. I okay. Mean, sex and Love Addicts Anonymous meetings are... I mean, you can just go to men's meetings or you can just go to women's meetings or you can go to, you know, co-ed meetings. Um, That's all available. And I don't know how it's been with COVID. I'm pretty sure they've taken all of the, I'm not part of the 12 step anymore, but Mm -hmm. I'm sure that they take, they've taken them to a digital space, which makes it much more accessible for anybody who's going through these issues. Um, But yeah, I mean, getting help is accessible for, for anybody. Um, but yeah, finding information online is, is much harder and mm-hmm. finding real stories from women. And the reason I think that, you know, people still invite me to do interviews and like do TV stuff is like, I don't have to have my face blurred. Like I've already talked about it, but if another woman is talking about it so often, it's like, they want to be anonymous and I totally get it. Like, of course you'd want to be anonymous because there haven't been any stories reflected back to us, um, talking about this so you can go in those rooms i mean the 12-step rooms and and find people like you um but again those are like secretive you know covered places that you have to seek out and you know make time for and that can be difficult as well depending on where you live but in the media that's much harder to find um and hopefully i think the more people talk about it you know the more they'll come out and, and we'll have more stories from from women I know I've been judgmental about the idea of someone being um, a sex addict or having some sort of sexual deviancy until I, you know, grew up and had, um, you know, a, a wider point of view on things. And someone that I that I love told me that they were struggling with a porn addiction, and they started going to um, the one of those some of those groups, and they said. If only you could hear, and it was all all male. He's like, if only you could hear the stories from these folks. These are real humans struggling. They can't stop. So, like, even the guy that is parked near a playground, um, because the thrill for him is to have no pants on. You know, if a child might walk by, I mean, we're like, what an what an awful person! Like, how dare they? That's so gross! Like, let's name them and point them out on a map. Like, sexual predator. They're still a human being struggling with something. They are, they're not really getting pleasure. Right. That just ends with pleasure. It's pleasure and shame. And I, I have so much more empathy now. Um, when I think, you know, when I look at it that way. I don't just write people off as like, oh, what a weirdo. Like he doesn't deserve to live. Yeah. I mean, it's true. Even with the guy parked in the car, I like that you brought that up because further shaming that person who already is probably consumed with his own shame, it's not going to change anything. It's not going to correct his behavior at all. All of those behaviors are still going to remain hidden, still going to remain obsessions in his mind that he's going to keep to himself because there's no safe place to take them. And, you know, that's how addiction grows is keeping it in the dark. I think the only way that you can heal shame is to talk about it and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, be brave enough and to find somebody who will listen to you and accept you for saying these, the most terrible things about yourself, you know, mm-hmm. it can be so refreshing. So what did that look like for you? What was like, 
when did you get to this point where you're like, I'm done feeling like this and I, I need to seek help or, or like what, what was the recovery journey? Um, so I think a lot of people think with addiction, you have to hit this rock bottom place. And for a lot of people, that's true. Like, especially if you have like a drug addiction, alcohol addiction, um, and even with sex addiction, I think you can like drain your bank account scene or like end your marriage or whatever. Um, but I didn't really have a rock bottom place. Um, I often say it was like, it was like a voice in my head that just kept getting louder and louder. Like something's got to change here. Cause I kept arriving at the same place again with my relationships and feeling like shit, as you say. Um, and so I saw my 30th birthday coming up and I remember I just gotten, I ruined another relationship with somebody who was incredibly important to me, um, over a hand job on vacation or something like really stupid and just feeling horrible about myself. Um, and so I thought, you know, I'm so tired of feeling this way. Something has to change and I want this decade to be better than the last. And so with that in mind and having just read Eat, Pray, Love, and I know that gets a lot of hate, um, I decided to take a trip to Bali. And so I went to Bali and um, what was great about being there was that my internet connection was not so great. So I didn't have mm. easy access to porn. So already from the very beginning, like my my habits, my patterns were sort of disrupted. And that's super important if you're trying to you know recover is like adopting new patterns, like identifying the patterns that aren't working and then finding new ways to, you know, deal and and cope. And so I found lots of like places to do. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Ubud, Bali, but like, it's all like surrounded by people who are like trying different like Reiki and like yoga and meditation classes and that kind of stuff. It's like very new agey, um, which was just like what I needed at that time, because mm-hmm. it just gave me like a whole lot of things to explore and experiment with. And um, I found myself in this really like open-minded place. And when I was in that sort of open-minded place of wanting to change, I met my husband and he was Mm. also recovering from drug and alcohol addiction. And he was on the same sort of journey. So right away we connected that way. Um, And I remember thinking at the very beginning, like, I'm just going to tell him, like, I'm just going to be real. Like I'm never, I'm never real. I always put on this face, you know, and like try to keep things cool, be the cool girl, be casual, whatever. Um, but instead I took a chance and I was super vulnerable with him. And he was the first person that I told that I thought I might be a sex addict to. And it was like my biggest fear, as I'd said before, of like somebody finding this out about me. Um, but he didn't run away. He accepted me. And I remember thinking like, Oh, like I've revealed this terrible thing about myself and he's not running away. And this feels so good to be authentic and real. I'm just going to keep doing this. And so going to 12 step meetings, I started to write about, you know, and publish about these things. And when I first published an essay about this and I put it on the website salon, it got so much feedback. I mean, that's basically how I got my book deal in the end. That's a whole other story, but it got so much feedback and I was surprised, like, men, women, like young teenage girls, people like elderly people, people from old cultures, like around the world. Like I got so much, I got so much mail from people and it just gave me this picture of like how big a problem this is, yet nobody's talking about it. And so many of them were like so relieved that finally somebody was saying these things that they'd been, you know, keeping secret for so long um, and they didn't feel so alone anymore. And just hearing from them helped me feel less alone as well. So we were helping each other in that way. Um, And I just thought like, I'm going to continue writing about this and talking about this as much as possible because I'm healing and hopefully I'm helping some other people feel a little bit better today by reading it. Um, And so I just kept going and that's become pretty much my, the main part of my career is writing about this, talking about this. And then you became 
a mother, <laughs> you know, and mothers are supposed to just only think about nurturing. And like we were talking about before, they're desexualized in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So as someone who's so outspoken a- a- about this topic, like, is it something that the other moms at drop off are like, oh, like either there's Erica, like she talks about sex all the time, or there's Erica, like the only real person here. <laughs> What's it like for you as a mom? I mean, my daughter is just in kindergarten and, and I don't, I haven't, um, I am actually the class mom and I wonder if they've Googled me. Like we haven't, it's not something that I've talked about like at like school functions and things like that. When people ask me, you know, what do you do? I say, I'm a writer. I'm like, what do you write? And then it might come up that way. Um, I'll be like, oh, I wrote this book a few years ago, whatever. What's it about? And then we'll get into the talk. And most of the time, people want to hear about it and want to talk more about it. You know, they're like, oh, wow, that's interesting. You know, that's a new thing we haven't talked about before. Um, Only a few times it's been awkward, you know, and and I usually if it's awkward, whatever, we just change the subject. And I also think like, that's probably something about, you know, with them or like, you know, there's all sorts of things that make us feel ashamed about sex. I totally get it. Mm -hmm. Um, But maybe if I lived in like a really like small town, like conservative town somewhere, I think it might be a little bit harder. I might feel like a pariah. But I live in in LA and like, you know, lots of creatives around. So I don't think it's like that weird. Like I said, like people are willing to talk about it. And who knows? I mean, who knows? Behind closed doors, maybe people are saying things, but nobody's ever brought it to me. And I could still be class mom. And you know, they haven't like, forbidden me from coming to the school or anything like that. So yeah, I mean, I I think it's I think it's fine. And I, I hope that, you know, it's becoming just totally normalized talking about these sorts of things, these difficult topics. I think we need more people just being real and talking about scary things Um, because it also gives other people permission to talk Mm -hmm. about their own scary stuff. Um, If you take that first chance, then it's like, oh, let's take this small talk conversation somewhere much more interesting and we're going to connect much better. Um, So yeah, I always try to take that opportunity, even if it's weird. (laughs) Feel like there's a desire on the other person, especially mothers to to be part of this conversation, they just feel embarrassed about it or, and which is why so much of what we talk about not safe for mom group is anonymous. It's like the only way you're going to get people to really be themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even admitting that motherhood is that it sucks sometimes is hard for some women to admit. Like they feel like, Oh no, I don't want my kid to think I don't love them and all these sorts of things. So that's, I I really do admire your group Um, because yeah, we need to be having those conversations. And then you feel so less alone if you hear somebody else, you know, articulating what you've been holding back for so long. Mm -hmm. Um, It's incredibly helpful. Did motherhood change how you felt about your sexuality? Did you feel like you even had like a deeper understanding of like what you need, what you require for pleasure? The way that it's changed me in a significant way, I'd say, is that I'm much more gentler on myself now. Um, And I think it's because I have a daughter and because I often see myself in her and like I see her as this like, you know, fresh slate. And like, you know, I remember 
like I know what happened over time. So it's like, I can see where it can go and Mm. I want to change that path for her. So like from the very beginning, one of the things I did is like so simple, like let's just use correct anatomical names for body parts. That was something I had read that was like, just like the early way to like, you know, talk about sex with your kids. Um, And then we bought this like, kids book called oh, I should have brought it out but it's like 21st century to the birds and the bees or something and it has like mm-hmm. you know the sperm with like a little bow tie meeting the egg and there's like talks about IVF like it talks about all the different ways um and so I mean we've been reading that for a long time and you know little things like that and I know they'll get more complex over time um but uh but I just want to be a safe place for her because I didn't have that growing up. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I feel like I'm trying to make peace with the past me through my daughter um, by just doing different things when it comes to sex. I catch myself just being like, yeah, so gentle with her and like understanding and patient. And like, I could do that to the little girl who's still in me, you know, like I can, I can take care of myself now. And so that's a big thing for me is like just noticing that, noticing that I can be that parent. This I can be as gentle to myself as I am gentle to her. Um, She's really lucky to have you as a mom. Thanks. Shifting gears a little bit, I read one of your pieces about going to a swingers resort. Please tell us more. What is it? <laughs> Who goes? I've only will this to... reignite people's sex lives? Yes. Well, yeah. I, I've only been to swingers resort once, so I wouldn't call myself a swingers a swinger. Um, because it was something I just tried. Um, but I, yeah, not long after I got, I wrote my book or published my book, I was invited by this Mexican resort in uh, Cancun and, um, it was clothing, clothing optional. They called it, they don't refer to themselves as they, they got very angry when I referred to it as a swingers resort. So it's a clothing optional resort um, where everyone is swingers. (laughs) Um, and I remember going there, my husband and I were like, okay, we're just going to go and observe and like you know, just see how these, these people live. Like, I don't know. It was almost like we were kind of <laughs> judgmental about it. Like how they're going to meet these weird people. And then we got there and we just jumped right into it. It was very easy to just like, okay, let's do this. Yeah. It's like, we're here. Everybody Why in not? the pool. Yeah. And, and also it was just like, I stopped feeling like judgmental about them because then I'm here interacting with them and they're just normal people who live all over the country. And, you know, like they have, you know, that guy's a banker, that naked guy, you know, it's like very strange, but, um, um, but it also just felt so free and, and, um, yeah, like I, I felt like I could give myself permission to explore these things and like, it was safe there. It felt like a safe place. Um, and I also liked that everyone is just like so communicative. So like, but can I put my hand right here? Is it okay if, you know, we talk about this? Like, it's all, like, permission is just so important there. Um, and I loved that. And I loved how real everyone was. And um, and also, it's kind of a blur because there's lots of margaritas. And it was all <laughs> inclusive. So, yeah. But, um, yeah, it was just that one time. And it's super expensive. So I don't know if I would ever go again unless I was invited to do, like, a, a rewrite or something, a, a next edition. Um but it's certainly worthwhile. I mean, I would recommend it to anyone who's open, as long as you don't think it will cause any sort of problems. I think mm-hmm. it's important to have those discussions um, beforehand and then also during, you know, because when we started to change our mind about like, sh- should we explore this? Like we had to talk about, okay, like how far are we going to go now? And mm-hmm. like, 
if, if we feel like this is going too far, then let's have like a safe word or whatever, you know, like just checking in with each other was super important so that we didn't cross any boundaries. Um, and those boundaries just kept moving all over the place anyway, (laughs) but, um, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. It sounded like fun. Um, it sounded like a really cool way to just push the edges of your relationship and your communication. And that's like one of the things when, when a marriage starts going wrong, it's this breakdown of communication. And the thing that you know, non-monogamous communities, polyamory communities do best is communicate. Mm-hmm. You know, people think it's like just everyone jumping into a giant orgy, but like consent is so vital yes. um, to the process. And like, what if that was part of our everyday marital relationships. Like what if you talked about sex with your partner the way you would if you were at a swingers resort? Like how would that change? How would that change things for you in terms of pleasure, connection, Mm -hmm. um, understanding the other person? I just, I think it's a, I think it's a cool idea. Yeah. In a pre-COVID world. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I know. I wonder. I, I searched the other day, like, are they still around? They're still around. But it was like, did COVID kill them? I can't imagine how they handled that with the masks and stuff. I cannot. I cannot. <laughs> no. <laughs> Clothing optional, masks, definitely. Yes, just masks. <laughs> so let's say someone's listening to this and they're like, well, I don't know. This kind of sounds like me. Um, and I've never been able to talk about it before. But now I feel more empowered to go talk to somebody or to find a group that can support me. Where does, what's the first step someone can take? Where can they go? I would start with a sex addicts anonymous meeting all the way. Okay. I mean, even more so than maybe confiding in somebody in your life because you don't know if that will cause problems. I mean, unless you feel completely safe and you have that honest, open communication already with this person and, you know, they won't judge you, they'll accept you, whatever. But um, where you know, you won't be judged for sure, is um, at a 12 step meeting, because mm-hmm. it's just a community of like minded people all talking very openly about these, these topics in a safe place. Um, and even if you don't, if you don't like the vibe, you don't like the mention of God, or like the, you know, the rec- reciting the steps, all those kind of things, you can kind of just throw that away and just like, go for the stories and go for the mm-hmm. safe space. Um, and just try it out. Um, and then of course, therapy is always a good thing. Um, yeah, just finding somebody to talk to frankly and honestly, I think is the best medicine for anything like this. Um, even if you're not sure, you know, Mm -hmm. you're an addict or not is just being able to talk it through with somebody and be witnessed, I think is so powerful. It's such a powerful story. And, um, I urge everyone to read this book, getting off, um, Getting Off One Woman's Journey Through Sex and Porn Addiction, the full title, just want to do it justice. Um, it's it's such a great read, and I think it will open your eyes or just make you feel understood and, and take away some of the shame that so many of us hold around to the topic of sex. To hear more true stories from real moms and conversations with experts you won't hear anywhere else, subscribe to the Not Safe for Mom Group podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram at the Not Safe Podcast and go to notsafermomgroup.com to subscribe to our newsletter so you can stay up to date on all things Not Safe for Mom Group podcast related. And if you love what you hear, please leave us a review. It really helps. And it also helps more moms get the support they need.